hey, didn't see you there. Welcome to Burn Your Draft, the podcast exploring the Reed College thesis process and experience. I'm your host and producer, Tommy Schacht, and for this episode, I got to speak with Sophia Larson-Teske about her thesis on salmon fishing among the native peoples along the Columbia River. Take it away, Sophia. Hi, my name is Sophia Larson-Teske, and I am from Hood River, Oregon. I was an anthropology major when I was at Reed, and I wrote a thesis called Salmon Pluralities, Ichiwanapum, Traditional Fishing, and Indigenous Modernity. And my thesis was advised by Alejandro Roche Racinos in the anthropology department. Can you tell me, quick summary, what is your thesis about? So my thesis argues that traditional fishing along the Columbia is both a material and abstract site of contention about what constitutes proper indigeneity. And yet that's proper in like quotation marks. And I argue that the ongoing practices of and claims made about traditional fishing represent a site of resistance in which the Ichiwanapum are laying claim to their own form of indigenous modernity. So the Ichiwanapum is a broad designation for the networks of tribes and clans and familial kinship systems of the native peoples along the Columbia River. Today, they're federally recognized as the confederated tribes and bands of the Nez Perce, the Umatilla, the Yakima, and the Warm Springs. That's like the four big tribe names, but within that, there's a lot of particularity and social organizations that don't neatly map up onto those larger organizational frameworks. To break down some of the terms I'm using and my argument a bit more, the Ichiwana is the Ichiskin name for the Columbia River, and Ichiskin is one of the main languages spoken by the indigenous peoples of the Columbia River Gorge. It's also called Sahaptan. And Ichiwanapum, the term, translates to the people of the mighty river, the people of the Columbia River. And that is not the name of a tribe, per se, like saying the Yakima or the Umatilla, but rather a broader signification to refer to all of the indigenous peoples of the region. So that term, Ichiwanapum, also includes the the native families and fishers who chose never to leave the river or move to inland reservations and thus don't have federally recognized tribal affiliation. So it's an umbrella term that I use to, throughout my thesis, make broader claims that are very locatable in specific people I interviewed and like their positionality in the world. But there's tribal nuance and there's different clans, but they also share a lot of cultural and religious and spiritual similarities, which is how they have a term like that. It sounds like geographic location makes up a big part of their identity. Yeah, and I would say that the two central things that I argue are part of this identity is the Ichiwana, the mighty river, the river of life. The Columbia River functioned so centrally into providing everything they needed to survive and their ancestors needed to survive since time immemorial. And so the river... And that place was such a big part of that identity. And that identity is also founded in relation to the Waikanush, the salmon. And that's salmon and the Ichiwanapum are like the two big actors in my thesis. The salmon are very culturally significant because they represent one of the first foods. And cosmologically, the first foods stepped forward and offered themselves to the people who came to the area. And so salmon offered his body to the people. And so then there is like a legal obligation that the Ichiwanapum have to salmon, to the Waikanish, because the salmon said, 
I'll give the people my body, but they have to let some of my people go and promise to take care of my people. And so there's that fundamental story of sustaining relationship of its, but it's also obligation. The fish gave their bodies to us, so we fish them, but then we in turn respect the fish and make sure there's enough of them to ensure future harvests and future seasons and enough for generations and generations. They also play a huge economic role in the region and have for thousands and thousands of years. Before the arrival of settlers, they were a huge trade resource and millions of pounds of salmon were harvested a year over the sustenance quotas of the tribes because they were used in trade. And Celilo Falls, or Wyam, was a waterfall along the Columbia River. The Wyam represented a trading site, and on the banks of Wyam was a Celilo village. On the other side was Wishram. And these two sites are two of the longest continuously inhabited places in North America. And there's both oral and archaeological evidence suggesting that people came from as far away as present-day Canada, from the plains, from present-day Mexico, all to the banks of the Columbia to trade. And there was a huge extensive trade network for 10,000 years. And salmon functioned centrally within that. And now a lot of the fishermen, they sell salmon. And so it, it continues to have an economic role, though changed given the changing river and the changing realities of being a fisher. I love hearing about this trading center because I feel like having a major trading center that people are traveling from far and wide to get to is not really part of the cultural narrative that we have for. Exactly. <laughs> and that kind of brings me to what's at the core of my thesis. And because my thesis explores the pernicious myths of authenticity that surround indigeneity and being Native American of how they're supposed to be some like true culture, like somehow as you progress, you lose culture or whatever. <laughs> or there's a fallacy that and this is I drew this from Marshall Solins that he said, when Europeans change, it's called progress. When anyone else does, it's the loss of cultural authenticity, which I thought was a very concise yeah. to the point way of saying yeah. exactly what you referred to. And so my thesis works against that and with it in some ways. That's part of the claim I have of indigenous modernity. And that's a term that I drew from Solins and also another anthropologist named Chie Sakakabara. And they both talk about indigenous modernity as a claim of indigenous peoples of upholding their ways of life, whether that be ceremonial and legal obligations to salmon, in the example of my thesis, while also adapting and changing to match the changing world and reality of being both modern and also holding on to tradition and custom and culture, and how that doesn't necessarily have to be diametrically opposed, but rather can work together. These fishers that I talked to, you know, use modern gear and modern fishing technologies and yet still have very deeply held and very ancient cultural relationship with the salmon. And instead of a binary opposite between like culture and modernity, it's creating a space of agentive change and resilience and saying that culture has never been static. And that's what I do a lot of in my thesis is I disabuse master narratives is what I call them. And Can you break that down a little bit? Yeah. For me? And that's a reference to Julia Whitaker's work and Roxanne Ortiz. And they wrote a book. This book dissects a lot of the common myths about Native Americans, kind of like you referred to earlier that Native Americans exist as some homogenous group without particularity. And when I was approaching this topic, the more I did research on it, the more I realized that there were these fundamental assumptions and stereotypes that were doing real damage and violence to people in ways that could be unexpected, whether it was like written subtly into the language of treaty rights and the mm -hmm. law that therefore was restricting 
the ability for these tribal fishermen to fish, all of these dominant understandings can be very misleading because it teaches you a very specific idea of the past or of Native Americans that does not match up to other experiences and other tellings of that same story. I very much in my thesis was trying to be like, even this has some undergirding assumptions about what constitutes proper fishing and how Indigenous fishing is supposed to look a certain way when actually you can't use dip nets on the Columbia anymore because there's three hydroelectric dams that changed the whole flow, changed the current, changed yeah. the shape of the river. I drew a lot on Paul Nadasti's work, and he has a whole piece about how the environmentalism movement has co-opted indigenous worldviews and modes of relating to the world as like perfect conservation and things like that, or like the perfect environmentalist. And he says that's wrong because in the example of my thesis, it's a sustainable relationship with salmon, but it's a relationship premised on salmon death. It's premised on violence, but it's about how do you have ethical relating while knowing that violence is going to happen. Salmon are going to die in order to feed you and your people. But how do you give back and give thanks and have respect and ethical commitment and legal responsibility in that original covenant between Salmon, the creator and the first people? How do you uphold that? And I was hoping my thesis was also helping to undo some of those assumptions we have about the proximity of environmentalism to indigenous worldviews, because as I showed in my thesis, it's not quite as close as is thought. How did you pick your thesis topic? That's a good question. My mom develops programs and teaches local tribal history in the gorge. And so for a lot of my life, I had exposure to a lot of the culture and like knew a lot of people from Yakima and Warm Spring and everything. And when it came time to do my thesis with an anthropology thesis, I wanted to prioritize doing my own ethnographic research, which mm -hmm. means doing interviews and collecting firsthand testimonies and having conversations and gathering research that way. And with kind of the precarity that the post-COVID world created, you know, was more of a stable decision to do research locally that I yeah. wouldn't have to go abroad for because a lot of readies in the past have gone abroad for anthro research. And so I was like, I think I'll stay local. My mom had started doing research into this really interesting case in the 80s called Salmon Scam. And not many people know about it, but it was a federal sting operation to arrest tribal fishermen on the Columbia River. And yeah, for it was- what? <laughs> for fishing. <laughs> oh, yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. It, it was, I mean, there's this crazy history of the fish wars, which have been both legal contentions and also like violent contentions between police and fishermen about fishing. And this was just another episode of it where- a bunch of fishers were arrested and put in jail, including one of our friends was in federal prison for, I think, oh, three wow. years for like selling 117 fish out of season. And so I was reading about this and a lot of it came after some of the Red Power era and there were fishing demonstrations and a lot of tribal activism in the 60s and 70s. And so then I guess I remember reading about it and hearing about it from my mom and I was like, it'd be really interesting to do a thesis on that. And so that's where my thesis started was it was going to be a legal anthropology thesis about salmon scam and the fish wars and then it became more of like a cultural anthro thesis that's like very indigenous studies based and shifted i read a really amazing book called whale snow by chie sakakabara it's from 2020 where she chronicles whaling with the Inupiaq up in alaska and i was so struck by it i had picked it up just one summer and then i was like 
I could do a thesis about this. And so that original idea of doing a more of a legal anthro focus then became something else. And I'm really glad that I took a legal anthro class and developed some of those thoughts. But then the arguments I ended up making and where my thesis led me was much more of what I wanted to say about the subject. <laughs> yeah. I think it just took me a while to figure out exactly what I wanted to say. Yeah. Well, and it's supposed to. I mean, thesis yeah. takes a full year. And as far as research projects go, that's relatively short even. Yes, it is very <laughs> short. <laughs> so when you came in to read, did you come in knowing you wanted to eventually do a thesis on Indigenous peoples? No, I was a biology major. <laughs> um, who thought I was going to med school or something? I came in as a biology major and then second semester freshman Year, I took Betsy Brada's global health intro anthro class. And that was the first time I'd really taken an anthropology class or been exposed to the discipline. And I was like, whoa, this discipline is asking the questions I want to ask about the world. Whoa, this discipline has the critical reflexivity I've always wanted to have about the world. I became an anthro major and started taking a bunch of classes and stumbled more into kind of multi-species work and more of the indigenous studies work in anthro. And then I took Josh Howe's environmental history class, American environmental history class, and that influenced me. Also, I worked for two summers as an outdoor school educator with a program that is bringing traditional ecological knowledge into outdoor education for middle schoolers in the area. And I worked with elders from Yakima and I worked with educators from Warm Springs and Lummi Nation. And that work was really rewarding. And I learned a lot more about the local history and the particularities of the tribes in the area. And so I think just all of that contributed to the thesis I ended up writing. But it was not just a one track thing. It was really yeah. like <laughs> spring of junior year. And I was like, I need to start thinking about a thesis, if, especially if I want to do research. So it was not a linear trajectory. Not much is. So tell me about your thesis process. Say like on a day to day, week to week basis, what did it look like? I think writing a thesis that's less like lab research, if you're in biology or chemistry or neuroscience or whatever, when you're writing a thesis that's more of developing an argument and finding the theory and the research to like prove it and all that type of stuff, it's a really different process. So I had friends who went to the lab every single day, did their process, did their protocol. For me, it was a lot less structured. I think because there was an arc to it. I came into the fall of my senior year and was like, I need to start thesis. And this was also at the point where I was still going to write a legal anthro thesis. <laughs> and so what I started doing was collecting a reading list of all the things I wanted to read. And it was hard because I had to read both the research portion and then also read anthropological theory to support the things I was researching. And so my first step was really compiling a list of things to read and also scheduling interviews because I did the IRB process on the Institutional Review Board so that I could be approved to do interviews as part of my research. And so during the fall, I did interviews with three different elders for my thesis, and that contributed to a lot of the primary research I did. I created a calendar in the back of my thesis notebook and was like, okay, here are some general deadlines. Talk to my advisor. My goal was to finish a, f a chapter by the end of the first semester. And so it was really just about how do I get to that goal? And I chose to write my first chapter first, which makes <laughs> sense, which was like more of a background. What history? What is the contextualization you need to know to understand what I end up arguing later on? And so my day-to-day -day at the beginning was a lot of read a little bit, take some notes, where this might fit. I did a lot of referencing the bibliographies of other works. So I'd flip to the back if it was something I was interested in and be like, 
Who else is writing about this? You start getting a sense of like, okay, there's a group of scholars that are talking about this thing. There's a group of scholars talking about this thing and getting familiar with those names. But then once second semester rolled around, my process changed dramatically. (laughs) We got thesis desks in the spring. I think it might have been March or April. And that was a godsend because I was lugging my books everywhere because I had a lot of hard copy books. Having a place to just put all my books and leave all my books and leave everything a mess and just have it be my zone save my life. And so then like when it really came down to writing a lot, I again had a calendar of the whole semester and was like, these are my deadlines that I want to meet so that I have time to edit before the first draft is due. In the spring, I was pumping out a chapter every three weeks for a little while. Like it got down to the line. It's three chapters plus an intro, a preface and a conclusion. Okay. So it ended up being 83 pages in the template. So. Yeah, it's a hefty one, 28,000 words. <laughs> and it's you can't think about it all at once because it's absolutely overwhelming. And so it really helped me being more like, okay, today I want to try to write one page or just write one brainstorm about one idea. I just read some theory, write all the things I can think of to connect it to my topic, just to have thoughts in place. Because a lot of my thesis was like thinking, especially once I got the comments back from my first and second reader after the first draft deadline. I spent most of my time being like, I don't know if my argument makes sense. The IRB is, <laughs> it's its own animal. I think what's really great about having to do it for something as low stakes as the Reed undergrad thesis is it gives you exposure to the bureaucratic hurdles of doing research and the support to do that uh, before you're like doing a master's or a PhD or something. So I was really glad I went through that. But I didn't know this until after the qual junior year. Some of my anthro friends were like, oh, yeah, if you want to do ethnography, you need to get your IRB proposal in by the start of the summer. I think I submitted mine in April of junior year. So I already had my project proposal in place. And I drafted a lot of that in conversation with my then advisor, not my thesis advisor, but Betsy Brada was my advisor and she helped me. And I also found an anthro major who had graduated a year before me and done the IRB process and they showed me their whole application. There's certain words you have to use and phrasing things the way the IRB wants to hear them. But a lot of it was just explaining your research methods and like how you're not going to harm anyone and how you're going to get consent and how you're going to record things and how you're going to deal with the archives and all that type of stuff. In the middle of it, I was like, this is really frustrating and confusing and doesn't make sense. And why is it so hard to just go talk to people? It took them a long time to get back. It was just that whole summer. It was like a lot of back and forth. So I didn't get a research as early as I thought I would. But I got it back and they were like, you have to do some edits. And so I did the edits and I refined some points and sent it back and then finally got the approval and then could do my research. I guess the Reed IRB specifically didn't have someone whose specialty was working with indigenous groups, which they wanted to have perspective on that for my thesis topic specifically. So I think it took longer than it should have because I'm pretty sure my advisor said it should only take a month um, to get back to you. But if you think you're going to use an IRB for your thesis, I would start drafting it as soon as you can just to like get it in place. Were there any other sort of unexpected challenges that you ran into during the whole thesis process? I decided to put photos in my thesis very last minute, which was maybe not the (laughs) smartest idea. But I also I really wanted to have some images in it. And so I think one of the best things I did and would encourage everyone to do is Cuss came and talked to us at our thesis orientation in October of senior year. And we're like, open the template right now as we talk, download it 
back it up to Google Drive and just start writing in the template because you want to get familiar with it. And so my entire thesis was written in the template, which I think was really good because it takes time to get used to and especially the formatting things because it's a whole kind of learning curve. But then I decided to add photos. And so then I met with the social sciences librarians and she was like, you have to get permission. So then I was sending email and on the phone with different organizations being like, hey, I love your photo. Can I use it? And I ended up getting permission for all of them or finding them open source public domain, which felt really nice to be able to say use with permission by XYZ because that felt respectful too. just yeah, good etiquette being a scholar yeah. <laughs> type thing. That was tricky. And I did that within the last two weeks before the final draft was due. So don't recommend doing that. Think earlier if you're going to start putting that in because, again, the formatting is tricky. Just the whole formatting thing was stressful. You're formatting so that when it's printed into a book, it looks good, which is not just like, you know, a manuscript or something. It's like very much already in the form of how it's going to look and the pages. And yeah, so I think it just takes a while to get used to that. But now I'm like, wow, I know how to format a multi-chapter document. So there. Yeah, <laughs> you have a really pretty book. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Um. So the next question, what was the outcome of your project? Like, was it what you expected? Which I feel like we already touched on a little bit. Yeah. Is there anything that you wanted to add to that? I guess this might be partially to reiterate, but for me, I found the topic I wanted to do. And then it was more about what types of questions do I want to ask about that? What type of argument do I want to make about that? And I started with one set of questions and ended with a very different set of answers. And that, I think, is just part of the process, or at least was part of my process of the more I researched, the more I was like, the legal anthro is in there, but I want to be making other claims. My final result did look a lot different than my proposal. I remember rereading my proposal at one point last year, and I was like, what was I on about? <laughs> Spring of junior year, I was had pretty broad questions. And you can have pretty broad questions with the IRB and with your thesis proposal, because everyone knows that you're going to be honing that in as you develop your argument. Just being open to asking yourself, what types of questions do I want to ask about this topic? Or what type of theory am I really into that I really want to have a shot at creating my own multi-chapter document about? (laughs) Love, you keep referring to it as multi-chapter document. Like, it's like one word. (laughs) It's a it's huge. It's no, it's a little book. It's 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 a little book. I had a friend who just finished her master's at the London School of Economics. It was a one year's ma- one year master's program and her thesis only had to be 12,000 words. And I wrote a 28,000 oh? words undergrad. So I was like, it's even I have a friend who says too that Reed is a BA and an MA in 4 years and My God, after the thesis, it feels that way. But then you do, you have a multi-chapter document (laughs) to show grad schools or wherever you're applying to that you've accomplished something like that already. The thesis process, it is a nine-month process, which is not a long time for anything, specifically for... It's your baby. Yeah, no, I would would joke that it was a nine-month gestation. I birthed 28,000 words this past year. Woo, quite the labor. Um, But I think I have a tendency to bite off more I can chew. And I know a lot of readies probably have the same tendency and are probably asking big questions that are just a little too big for honestly like more like that five is like, months of research and like two three months of actual writing and editing and stuff that is the tradition <laughs> yeah 
So I think really start with the broad questions, but then latch on to the specific ones and roll with them. And ultimately, the thesis is there to give you a chance to give a stab at some of this work that you've been enjoying and thriving off of for years, like your favorite books or whatever, and be like, whoa, I could do that too. How do they do it? And just seeing how scholars make arguments and then being like, how could I make one that sounds like that? But also know that I am not writing a PhD, so I can't write a whole book on it. (laughs) I remember once my advisor told me at the very beginning of the year that the thesis is like three 10 to 20 page research papers that are all connected by a general argument, but they're really each chapter is its own argument and its own little paper. And that helped me think about it. Okay, it's a multi-chapter document, (laughs) but it's really just three 10 to 20 research papers, which you might write in finals week at Reed College. So So true. You might write in like one caffeine-fueled night. (laughs) Yeah. Being like, what are my three arguments and how do they all connect? Just breaking it into pieces because it feels so overwhelming. But then once you're through it, you're like, wow, I I did that. It's really rewarding. You're like, man, okay, Reed College. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Okay. And on that note, you've been out of read for a short amount of time now. But what are your post-read plans and has your thesis influenced them? My post-read plans as of right now, I've been taking time off. This summer was a major brain break. Couldn't touch anything remotely intellectual for three months. I was like, (laughs) nope, I don't want to think a thought right now. But I'm easing back into my own intellectual curiosity now. So yeah, I am looking for a job. I'm taking a gap year or two. I do think I want to go to grad school and I think I'm going to apply this fall, but I also am really enjoying just not having the stress of read or of academia because it was very stressful and push- pushes you really hard. And I think taking the time to recuperate and rest is really important to me. And so I'm currently, I have a part-time job right now, but I'm like starting to apply for other full-time things and very much my thesis did influence me with that. I am looking to get a job with a local nonprofit doing work surrounding resource management and native tribal issues in the area. So looking at some of the cool organizations we have nearby to continue my thesis work and to mobilize it into the world because I can think about it and talk about it all day, but then to actually be on the ground doing some of that work and having the experience of doing the work that I talk so much about. Doing the thing. (laughs) Exactly. So I really want to do the thing for the year, if not a couple years, depending on the job I settle into. But I do think I want to do the higher ed thing. So yeah. Yeah. This wasn't enough. This didn't turn you off. (laughs) It didn't. I think honestly, like now that I've had some time to rest and even start rereading my thesis a little bit, I am really like, wow, I this work is really rewarding for me. And I really like, especially I think Anthro's mode of doing research is so based on field work and the ethnographic method and spending time and like taking people's words seriously and their testimonies and experiences. And I really value that. So I think I do want to do the get another degree thing. And yeah, it's it's really just a matter of what what that's going to be or where that's going to be or or when that's going to be. (laughs) Uh, If you could have anybody, who would you want to read your thesis? It can be like in general, it could be a specific person. If you have one, who do you think that it would be meaningful for? I'm preparing to give a copy to the three people I interviewed. And I think it'll be it's important for me to give it back to the people that gave their words to my thesis and to say, this is what I did with them. And I think just as a record of these histories and of these stories and of the theory that I used to think through them with, 
it's really important, I think, in this region, too. And because this is our local history, this is the history yeah. of this area of of salmon and all these things. I'm excited for the people I interviewed to read my thesis. And I think I'm just excited to have it available as another piece of work done in the region about these histories because there aren't many. The library is pretty small. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Final question. One of my favorites. Is there anybody that you would like to thank for helping you during your thesis process? First and foremost, I would like to thank the three people I interviewed because their words were so important. And I think getting the chance to interview them and use that in my thesis was so invaluable. And I have such deep gratitude. And then probably also just my family and friends, because you don't produce anything in a vacuum. And you are so intricately within a web of the relations that surround you that help you and fuel you and get you through those hard days. And they were a lot of those last year, too, when I would sit there and I was like, my argument doesn't make sense. I'm not proving anything. What's happening? What am I trying to say? It's 2 a.m. in the library. I'm falling apart. And then I'd call someone or see someone and they'd be like, it's going to be okay. And I think just those people were so valuable to me. That's so lovely. Yeah. Sometimes it, you just need someone else to say it. And you're like, yeah, it is going to be okay. <laughs> yeah. Because you can get so in your head about it. And yeah. I think, too, you get, you get a bit numbed after yeah. you've been reading the same draft. 10 times you're like what am I what am I doing you just get so into it that it's hard to remember what yeah what yeah what you're doing yeah thesis is a huge project yeah awesome all right well thank you so much for for chatting with me today yeah thank you so much for all your questions and I had a lot of fun (laughs) hope you guys have fun listening Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you'll join us again to talk to more readies about their theses and better understand just why you'd want to burn your draft. Burn Your Draft is a production of Reed College and the Center for Life Beyond Reed, created jointly by students, alumni, and staff. This episode was produced and engineered by me, Reed College student Tommy Schacht. Our executive producer is Seth Paston, class of 1990, with technical advising from staff member Joe Janica. Nate Martin, staff member and class of 2016, is our project manager. Music by Jack Salvucci, class of 2020, and podcast art by alumni Henry Gotchlik and Lillian Pham, class of 2020. This podcast was made possible by a gift from Seth Paskin.